So we're, we're in the second chapter this evening of Revelation. We did an intro. I think we did two weeks of chapter one. And here we are in chapter two. And um, we're going to go through verses one to 11. Um, and let me read here verse one through seven and six. And then I'll, I'll start talking a bit. Verse one says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And just as a pause here, I've said this many times, I've actually been able to say this a lot throughout the nation. Jesus does not judge the church of Ephesus based upon their faith, right? A lot of times people say, well, God will look at my heart. He'll know my heart. My, one of my new favorite albums has this line in it. And when I stand before God one day, he'll know my heart. But that is not how God will judge you. He will not judge you on the intents of your heart. Jesus judges the churches in the New Testament based expressly upon their deeds. And he takes, he says this, I will take away your lampstand if you are not faithful in deed. Right? Not in heart. Not in how well your heart is intended towards the Lord, but the actual acts that define you, I will take away your influence, your ability to shine light in the culture that I placed you. I know your works, Jesus says. And to Ephesus, he says, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. I think even today... In America, circa 2022, we have a lot of people that call themselves apostles and are not. On somebody's Instagram, they're the self-proclaimed global apostle. And are not. And are not. Apostles, apostles are marked by service to the local church, by persecution, um, by a spirit of a father, uh, these apostles are marked by celebrity status, by desperation for fame, uh, and by some other things that I won't go into right now. I know your works, you, you test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear to what the Spirit of the Lord says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the member of the Ephesians church who conquers, I will grant him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So last week we talked about how we're interpreting the book of Revelation. There's literal interpretation where you know our friends think that dragons are actually going to rise out of the sea and they're going to have multi-eyeballs and and then we said well that's really not in 
accordance or keeping with the rest of the prophetic language in the scripture, especially in the book of Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel. Those books give us symbolic prophetic imagery, and then Jesus says this phrase, or, or the Old Testament prophet says this phrase, to those who have an ear, let him or her hear. So God often speaks in parable, in symbols. There's a scripture in the New Testament that says, and wherever Jesus went, he only spoke to them in parables. So that those who had an ear to hear, whose hearts were inclined to the kingdom of heaven, they would hear the message of God, and those who were hardened of heart, their heart would be again hardened. We hear this language echoed in the end of Revelation. And those who are righteous, let them be righteous still, and let those who are wicked, let them be wicked still. Does anybody, you know that Johnny Cash song? He sings, he echoes that? What song is that? Anybody remember? What is it, babe? When the man comes around? Is that it? We like a little country in the Angle Heart Talks. We're country city folk. Okay, um... So we're looking at this in a symbolic picture. Why? Because the scripture gives us symbolic picture through Daniel, through Ezekiel, through all of the Old Testament prophets. And when we read Revelation, we see the same exact kind of language in reference to nations and kings and the hearts of the people of God to respond to the message that God is giving so they will repent of their deeds. Now remember, we're about to dive into the church here. We're about to do seven letters to seven different churches. This is the church. These are people that go to church. <laughs> These are people that believe that Jesus died and rose again. And yet, Jesus has things to say to correct them so that they will reap this incredible, eternal reward. We have a church culture that doesn't like to correct. It only likes to encourage, right? And parents encourage, and sometimes they encourage the bottoms of their children, right? Because we believe in both correction and encouragement, both together. Symbolic. Second is, we, the last week, one of the other things we talked about is that Jesus calls us to be kings and priests. That's our theme here at King's Church. He's called us, Revelation 1, chapter 6, 6 chapter 1, verse 6, to be kings and priests. And I happened to run across this in the book of Genesis last week, and I wanted to share it with you. Genesis 1.26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. We talked about that. We're stamped with the dignity of heaven. We have God's likeness stamped on our soul, that which gives us divine value. It's why we're not vegetarians. After our... <laughs> that was a freebie. After our likeness. And this is what they're supposed to do. This is the first thing that man is called to do after he's made by God, to rule. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. To rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, over all of the earth itself, and every creature that crawls upon it. God's intention for man from Genesis 1.26 to Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, is that man would learn how to rule because God is a ruler and we're made in his image and likeness. That we would be good rulers, that we would be good kings. And it starts very small. It starts with the things that God has given you. It starts with your relationships and your finances and your family. And then it moves upward from there. And Gabe talked about that this morning. If you get a chance to listen to that podcast, please do so. Please listen. Subscribe. Click the, click, click the bell. 
We have about 6,000 people a month that listen to our podcast, so keep spreading it. Uh, Jesus is, is blessing our stuff. So, And then finally, we talked about Revelation chapter 1, the end, which is this incredibly apocalyptic version of Jesus, this description of what he looks like. And it is not, you know, this felt, paisley blue, Caucasian Jesus. It is this fiery, terrifying deity with fire in his eyes and burnished feet and white hairs and the stars in his hand. It's this incredible picture of Jesus. And what's going to happen here is Jesus is going to appear before each of the seven churches. And his appearance will be different for each of the seven churches. And by that I mean the focus of who he is will be different. And it will communicate part of what he's speaking to them and the encouragement for how they're supposed to walk thereafter. The description of Christ. And we're going to look at that in Ephesians in one second. But I wanted to mention this because how Jesus appeared to the churches in Revelation in part communicates who he is for that time, for that juncture, for the changes that need to be made in their life to move on in faithfulness in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, we hear someone's testimony or story, and we say to ourselves, I wish God would show up that way for me. I don't know why God doesn't show up in that kind of way, with that kind of experience for me. And I want you to know that Jesus is always faithful to show up exactly as you need him to. And he shows up to the churches of Revelation, the seven churches, in seven different ways. And perhaps Jesus is showing up consistently in your life, and you're rejecting him because you want him to show up like somebody else. Like, Lord, I really want an open vision in the night. Well, too bad. Maybe he wants you to find him in your Bible reading in the morning. Right? The Lord is faithful to reveal himself to you just as you need it. Just like he was faithful here in Revelation with the churches in Revelation. That doesn't mean you shouldn't seek encounters with God and all that kind of stuff. Fantastic. Awesome. But you really primarily should be seeking Jesus. And when you seek Jesus, he doesn't just give you a high five. The real Jesus here judges us. <laughs> We have all these, like, you know, encounter nights, encounter services. I want to encounter God services. I want to have spiritual experiences. Okay, great. Do you know when Jesus encounters the churches of Revelation, he judges all of them. They're in sin, primarily. Five out of seven of them are in sin. And the encounter with Jesus is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling on the back of their neck. And oftentimes, especially in the charismatic church, we just want some kind of warmth experience. Well, the real Jesus is not that shallow. There's a fullness of who he is. It's powerful and beautiful and, and incredible to gaze and behold, but also it's corrective and sets us in right alignment with our eternal destiny. And I want to be in right alignment with my eternal destiny. Amen? Can you get an amen on that one? All right, so Jesus, this is what happens with every church's he appears in a certain way, A. Second, he judges the church. Third, he encourages them or he tells them to act in a certain way to avoid further judgment, worse judgment, worse things will happen if you do not. And then finally, there's a promise given if they respond in obedience. 
and an incredible promise um, that they will receive. But it's pretty amazing that every time Jesus shows up, every time to the church, he judges. And we live in this culture that's like, don't judge me, don't judge me. And judgment has been intimately integrated, connected with, you're not, it's some kind of evil. No, it's not. It's an incredible good. And it will, if we respond to the judgment of Jesus rightly, we will reap eternal dividends. Eternally, we will get rewards that move on through eternity. That's what happens to these churches. They reap eternal dividends. Okay, so let's jump right here into Ephesus, the first church. How does Jesus appear? We see it in this unique way. The words of the Lord who hold the seven stars in his right hand and who walk among the seven golden lampstands. So now that we know that Jesus is appearing that way to the church, we know it's going to be part of how he communicates to the church, what they're lacking, and how he, uh, how he looks. Why stars? Stars represent two things. We went, two things we went into this recently. First of all, it represents the eternal dominion of God, The universe belongs to him. Secondly, it represents all of the spiritual elements. that We know that Ephesians says that we battle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, and things lifted up against the knowledge of Jesus. Things that are in the heavenly places, demonic spirits and forces. Jesus is holding the stars because he's in control of everything. He dominates everything, both spiritual and cosmic. And then secondly, he walks among the lampstands. Remember, we said this the other day. We are the lamp, or or really the Holy Spirit is the lamp. We are the stand, right? His light shines through us. And it is the job of the church not simply to be insular, but to shine the light of the gospel, the truth of God's way to the culture. Not only simply that God forgives you of your sin, but in order to say that, you have to say what sin actually is. You can't say God forgives you of your sin if you don't say what sin actually is. We have a culture that's afraid, a church culture, afraid to say what sin is, but then just say like, God just forgives you of everything. You come in and you're like, Well, I don't know what sin is, so I'm still living with my girlfriend, and I'm still addicted to substances, and I'm still walking in slander and fear towards my brother and sister. You're like, well, that's called sin. (laughs) And God wants to forgive you of that when you repent and turn to him. But as believers, we don't keep walking in it. Lampstands that don't declare truth to a culture cannot see people converted. Because converted from what? Jesus is judging based upon deeds, not your internal belief system. Amen? So, um, stars in the hand, and he's walking among the lampstands. And this is part of part what he's going to communicate to, these, to the church in Ephesus. And let's look at how, what they get in trouble for. I know your work's... Well, let's talk about first their encouragement. I know your works, your toil and patient endurance, and I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those and called themselves apostles and are not. You know, in 
there are, I have really great friends in the Reformed church world, or really great guys that are very, very intense about theology. I met a guy one time, and um, he said, David, you don't have your MDiv, so I, you shouldn't even be a pastor. How dare you even pastor a church? Because the main job is that you'll be able to teach people God's pure doctrine. I really liked his heart. He was a retard, but excuse me, I really liked his heart. Idiot, sorry. Um, but the idea was he was so crazy about pure theology, that was his primary, that was like his primary aim. Everything else was secondary, that if you couldn't teach the people pure theology, you had a, a serious problem. In my, in my experience, usually people that are very intense about pure theology, they're missing two primary elements in their life. One is evangelism, and two is the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see both of these things in the church of Ephesus. That's why Jesus comes with the stars of heaven in his hand. It's talking about heavenly dominion, the power of the Spirit, and light, the lampstands that have a job to shed light into the world around it. And people that become super duper insular, super hyper-focused on exactly the right calculation inside the scripture, they often do so at the sacrifice of the power of the Holy Spirit and evangelism. And this is exactly what uh, G.K. Beale says in his commentary. He, one of the, at first he says on evangelisms, uh, excuse me, on the Holy Spirit, he says, the lampstands generally represent the power of the Spirit since this is how they are implicitly defined in Zechariah. Um, therefore, it is possible that the Ephesians were leaving their first love. They were leaving their dependence on the Spirit, which was necessary to be an effective witness in the world around them. And we remember that in Acts chapter 2, what happens? That tongues of fire alighted on the heads of the disciples, and so they were what? Lampstands. They were these standing devices with fire on their heads. And when you leave your first love for the calculative perfection of theology, oftentimes you leave the, the, the working of the Holy Spirit. And this is part of the reason why. If you want perfection at all times and the working of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be a problem. Because you can't understand the Holy Spirit. He's God. You don't get to put him in your box. You can approximately know how he functions. You can approximately know how he, what he does. But he's also God. And so being led by the Spirit of God, there's not like necessarily a, a, a perfect rubric uh, of how to do that. And when you see people that get A pluses in intelligence and intellect and theological consistency, you usually see churches that are without the Holy Spirit, the working of the Holy Spirit. So I'm talking about no healing, no prophetic gifting, no miraculous activity of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came to the church in the book of Acts, all of those things exploded. So that's no work of the Holy Spirit. And then with that is very little evangelism. And you actually see this really clearly in the Reformed circles, especially in the Calvinist world. I know the scripture perfectly. I have it all figured out. Uh, I am chosen by God. You're not. You're a vessel that's been damned to hell. And so... Tough, tough rocks, pal. If God really wants you to be saved, his sovereign grace will be irresistible and draw you to the cross. I don't even have to do anything about it. I mean, literally, that's how many of these, of these people that have perfect theology function. What does that mean? It means you don't have passion 
for the lost anymore. You don't have a heart that's broken for the world around you anymore. You have forgotten your first love. Certainly first love, in, uh, in part, it means love of God, that I have a heart that's passionate about God, but Jesus is talking here about deeds. He's not talking about hearts. He's talking about deeds. And that's why Jesus says, do the things you did at first. You know, when you go through marriage counseling, for those of you who haven't gone through it, when you go through marriage counseling one day, (laughs) they say, if you ever feel like you're falling out of love with your spouse, do the things you did at first. Just start by holding her hand again. You don't have to fix everything. You don't have to Jungian deep dive into your psyches. Just start by doing the things you did at first. Hold hands. Go on a date again. Like You don't have to go through all the kind of stuff, your dreams, and that one time you offended me because you didn't pick up your clothes from the bathroom floor. Like Forget all that kind of stuff. At first, you had grace for all of those things. And so when you do the things you did at first, it allows compassion to come back, grace to come back, the warmth of the Spirit to come back in your life. So what, are, so what is the, the, if the church of Ephesus doing great? What they're doing great is they have theology down, squared. They know who's wrong and who's right, uh, but they've lost their love. In part, um, the, this other weird thing happens here in the letter to, to the, the book of Ephesus. They get... Encouraged, corrected, encouraged, and then the kind of the final analysis. That doesn't happen in the other letters. And this encouraged, corrected, encouraged, the second encouragement is Jesus saying, I'm really glad you hate the works of the Nicolaitans because I also hate the works of the Nicolaitans. A couple of things to note there. Jesus hates stuff. Yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty basic, right? But we don't have a Jesus that hates stuff generally in our church culture. Jesus hates things. The Nicolaitans were people that were practicing sexual immorality. They were doing prostitute temple grossness with prostitutes. They were doing um, the, the emperor's cult as well. So they were Christians pretending they were feigning service to Jesus and faith to his cross. But the main things that they were doing is they were living in the, the same kind of immorality the culture was living in. And Jesus says, I hate those guys works, and I'm glad you do too. And so it's really important for us, especially as um, New Yorkers, because we have New York church culture that says you can trust Jesus, you can go to church, and you can live like the world. That's called being a Nicolaitan, and Jesus hates it. Doesn't just dislike it, not just slightly bothered by it, actually hates it. And so the, F- the Ephesians church um, stays away from the, the acts of the Nicolaitans who are practicing sexual anarchy, living like the world, engaging in temple prostitution, and all of the other acts that the world was doing at the time. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise uh, of God. Now, you'll notice this, that uh, there is a cultural temptation to eat of the fruit, to be tempted in the flesh. 
Jesus has three temptations when he goes in the desert for 40 days. You remember? The first temptation is a temptation of the flesh. Turn this stone into bread. Your flesh has a need. The church in Ephesus had been denying their flesh. They'd been denying walking in the practice like the Nicolaitans were. And Jesus said, you lock this one other thing down, you remember your first love. You remember the lost and the broken. You remember to make room for the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't, you know, analyze away the Holy Spirit. Oh, that prophecy wasn't perfect. We're never having prophecy again. Oh, I prayed for that person and they didn't get healed. It must never be in the will of God for me to pray for a person. I'm never going to do it again. You don't get to answer those questions. That's God's purview. He gets to determine who he heals and when he brings miracles. Your job is to pray for it. Amen? I don't want to have a church where we're like, ah, that's just not us. It's not us if we don't pray for it. That's for dang sure. Right? And also, we don't fake it. Because that's in God's purview. Jesus has the seven stars in his hand. He has dominion in that realm. So, they, so, so Jesus says, if you, if, you, if you warm your heart up, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And it's so funny because in my mind, I'm like, I can envision like the Baptist guy who has a khakis and he's tucks in his shirt all the time and he's like trying really hard and he's not being tempted by the world. And the Lord's like, I'm glad, I'm glad you've resisted the temptation of the flesh, the basic flesh temptation. If you warm your heart up, I have a tree of life for you to eat of forever. The greatest fruit you will ever experience. You've resisted the temptation of the flesh. You've held off the urge. You haven't practiced like the Nicolaitans were. The reward for you is going to be fruit party at my house. But I don't want you to come in cold. You can't come in without love. You don't get to enter this kingdom without love. It doesn't matter if your theology is perfect or not. You don't get to come in without love. You can't forget your first love. You have to have a warm heart towards God. And that doesn't mean just affection up in the air while I'm singing. How can I love God and yet hate my brother? And that's why evangelism is intimately connected to that concept. And that's why the works of the Holy Spirit are too, because when we spend time with the Lord, we should encounter his presence. blazing through all my notes here tonight. Um, we're going to jump to the next church. I just want to make, I want, I want to just point you to a scripture outside of Revelation real quick. Um, and an encouragement, if you're a brainiac, which we have a couple of brainiacs here, you should lean in towards the Holy Spirit. You should lean in toward encountering his presence. If you're naturally oriented towards reading Calvin's Institutes of Theology, which I'll pray for you if that's the case. Um, <laughs> you should lean in towards saying, God, I want to encounter your presence. I want to walk in your power. I want to, I want to 
communicate with people out there that don't know you, and I want to pray that you would heal them and touch their body. Give me a prophetic word for them. Let's see the miraculous dominion that you have for the life of the unbeliever, because I have a heart for the broken and the lost. Because Jesus, you had a heart for me. Amen? And then my encouragement on the other side is, if you're a person that just wants to hang out in the stars all the time, pick up Calvin's Institutes. <laughs> 1 Timothy 4.11, here's the tension right here. He says, Timothy's, um, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Never say the word retard from the pulpit. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to public reading of scripture, so, or to preaching, to teaching, do not neglect your gift, which was given through you by prophecy, we're laying on the uh, hands of elders. This is the supernatural gift, the gift of the Spirit, the, this gift that Ephesus had neglected. And then he says this, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely, preserve in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch your life and your doctrine. So the church in Ephesus were watching their doctrine, but they were not watching their life. And we're called to watch both things. The believer has to live in the tension of watching life and doctrine. And if you don't know your doctrine very well, I mean, I imagine you're learning here being a part of King's Church, but Theosu has an incredible program that I pay $15 a month for, and I watch once every six months. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> that's the business plan that's the business plan that's the model king's church discount gabefinocchio.com okay um you have to be a tithing member yes that's right 20 percent. all right i just want to say this other thing jesus says this phrase he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches if your heart is supple before God, if it's willing to be corrected by him, then you have an ear to hear what he has to say. If you have everything right, you listen to this message, you say, nah, that's not me. Couldn't be me. Could never be me. I have theology perfect. Couldn't ever be me. Definitely not me. Not me. But Jesus says, he who has an ear, he who has the ability to hear the parable and apply it to themselves... Let him hear, and it will draw you closer to the presence of God, the person of Jesus. He, he ends every one of these corrections, encouragements to every one of the churches saying, please, if you have an ear, let, please hear this. And Jesus uses this all through his teaching and in the Gospels. He who has an ear, it's, 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 God's not out there shooting a free candy gun at the universe. He wants hearts that are pursuing him. He's a valuable treasure. He's not cheap. You know, he's not like one of those handouts you get in Times Square that you drop one block later, you know? He's not cheap. You have to search him. And when he tells you something, it's not often perfectly clear. Why? Because he wants you to search him. Because he wants you to value it. Amen? Okay, so that statement, he who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus doesn't just say that in Revelation. He says it, all throughout the, the New Testament, Matthew 13, 
Um, and then it's echoed in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6, Jeremiah 5, Ezekiel 3, 27, and 12, 2. Okay, let's jump. Um, we did the reward, and let's jump to Smyrna, and then we'll, we'll close after Smyrna. Verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, for the rest of your life, I want you to read Revelation like this. As soon as you see who Jesus is, see then what he says to the church. How he appeared matters in the context of how, what he says to the church. Verse 9, I know your tribulation, but let's read 8 again just so you think about it. To the church, the angel of the church of Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are not. But they are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, so he's the first and the last. He's the one who died and came back to life. He's talking to a church that's undergoing persecution. Many of the members are about to actually die. Now, when we're talking about the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, we're talking about two things. We're talking about to the seven churches that were around in 70, approximately 70 to 90 AD when this was written. And also, we're talking about the universal church. There is always a persecuted church on the earth. For as long as there's been Christendom, there's been a persecuted church. Right now, primarily in the 1040 window in Iran. If you haven't watched the documentary Sheep Among Wolves, please watch it. It's one of the best documentaries I've seen in the last decade. Sheep Among Wolves is about the church in Iran, Iran, however you pronounce that. Uh, if you don't know this about that church, it's primarily led by women. Most of the pastors are women. Most of the leaders are women because the men get executed all the time. When there's a male leader that rises up, they chop his head off. And so the church is mostly run by women. It's an incredible uh, picture to the persecuted church. And Jesus appears to the persecuted church as the first and the last, one who rules all of creation, all of eternity, and the one who overcame death itself, who died and rose again. He's appearing to them exactly how they need him to be appeared to, right? Exactly what they need for exactly that situation, exactly when they're in persecution. He says to them, hey, boys, I've died and came back. I'm the one testifying to you. I'm the one encouraging you. I'm the one supporting you. It's not the Jesus that's walking among the lampstands. It's the one who's died and defeated death itself, who these believers are now about to face. It's really amazing, isn't it? Okay, so he comes as the first and the last uh, died and come back to life. He tells them they are going to face, face death. Now, this is it. They're facing death two different directions. One, from the persecution of the Jews, which Jesus calls the synagogue 
of Satan and the persecution from the Romans um, conjointly, if that's a word, in a joint manner, because the Jews are turning them over to the Romans, and the Romans are the ones generally executing them. Now, sometimes it is the Jews that stoned Stephen, for instance, if you remember in the book of Acts, but, but mostly persecution came to the church through the Roman Empire, not mostly through the Jew, through Jewish Empire. Um, this is a very interesting thing as well. Jesus is saying of the Jews that are persecuting the Christians, he's not saying of those Jews, those guys are great. They're still in the covenant. It's just a different covenant. He's saying they're of the synagogue of Satan. There's a lot of confusion about that, right? Like, they're just on a second track, and it's going to be a great second track. Now there's multiple tracks to God. No, there's one track. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you reject him and you persecute his church, you're of the synagogue now of Satan. You're not in the, you're not in the secondary old covenant synagogue. No, wrong. You're in a new synagogue. You have a new pastor. His name's Satan. <laughs> he charges more than 10% tithe. So they're persecuted by the Jews, and they're persecuted by the Romans. Uh, there was a cult at the time called the Imperial Cult. And Beale says it permeates essentially every aspect of Roman culture at the time, or Judaic-influenced culture at the time. Uh, it's all throughout Asia Minor, where the church of Smyrna is. And so if you weren't engaged in the imperial cult, which is sexual and financial, it's always sexual and financial, right? It's always like, live your life for money and sex, always. If you didn't engage in that culture, you couldn't really engage in commerce in Smyrna, so you were persecuted just economically. But then you would be ratted out to the Romans, and they would do more than that, and they would actually execute you um, for a lot of reasons, but I want to point you to this really interesting reference here. Verse 10, do not fear for what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you shall have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, 10 is generally uh, a, a number in the Old Testament for withstanding or holding your ground, uh, holding fast, standing in the grace of God. Five is the number of grace in the New Testament or throughout the scripture. Five plus five is double grace. You need double grace to withstand. And we see this here in the book of Daniel, where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they withstand the temptation from the, the, the Babylonian empire of party life and whatever they want to eat and live for yourself and your flesh. And they say to the guards who are trying to feed them, give us 10 days. And in 10 days, come back to us and look at us. And the commentary says the 10 days are significant because it represents us as people of faith standing against the pressure of culture, whether that produces persecution or not. And for, so remember, we were talking about specific church and universal church. And there are times in our life where we as believers are called to stand specifically for times against express temptations, not just the general temptation of sin, and then God will deliver us. The scripture says that we're only tempted for as much as we can bear, not more than that, and God always provides a way of escape for us. 
So if you think you're about to buckle, you've got more gas in the tank, or God will provide a way of escape. They're the only two options the scripture gives us. You, you're never in a place as a believer where you're tempted beyond what you can bear. Either you can bear it, or God's going to bring in a, a, an absolute escape hatch. And you're feeling tempted, and somebody just walks in the room and says, are you okay? Something looks wrong with you. You're about to do something stupid, and you get a phone call. Has anybody ever happened that, to that before? I've had, that's happened to me. I'm about to punch my wife right in the mouth, and then Landon calls me. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm not going to jail today. So praise God. That's a joke. We don't joke about punching our wives. That's also in 1 Timothy chapter 4. <laughs> okay, so Daniel 1.12, it says, Please test your servants for 10 days, and let us be given only vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with those of the young men who are eating the royal food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. A lot of people talk about this 21-day Daniel fast. It's so funny. People talk about it all the time. I'm like, it's actually not in the Bible. <laughs> There's 10 days where they're withstanding the secular culture and all the craziness they eat. There is no 21-day Daniel fast in the Bible where they eat only vegetables and water. It doesn't exist, okay? Just to clarify that. All righty. Not that I have a problem with eating vegetables and water. I should probably do more of that, actually. Here's the reward that they are given in the church of Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the church, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The reward that they're granted, in the previous verse before that, it says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And this is an incredible paradox because it seems like they're losing. It seems like the world is winning. It seems like Rome is winning. It seems like the synagogue of Satan is winning. And the believers get crowned for eternity as the winners, as the ones who have overcome, the ones who have withstood in Jesus' name. It's crazy because there's a time of persecution when it comes. You know, it's pretty basic. Hold on to your faith. Don't be a lunatic in sin. Like, hold on to your faith. And persecution comes. Persecution is around the world. And persecution comes to us New York believers as well. Sometimes I, I talk to people regularly that are persecuted in their workplace for being a believer. Uh, on the law side, I know people that have been fired for being Christians. I know people that have been fired for not putting up the Black Lives Matter flag. I know for people that have been fly, fired for not putting up the homosexual flag on their desk. They have homosexual flag day. They didn't put it up. They're like, you're a Christian some reason that they didn't, like, this one guy was like, they said, you didn't go to this meeting. And he's like, here's my chat log showing that I was in the meeting chatting with all of you guys in the same meeting. And they're like, nah, that's not true. Fired him. That's called persecution, you know? And God um, understands that there's a persecuted church, and the darker the culture gets, the more the church gets persecuted. But guess what? The ones who can withstand, they get a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death, David? That's a weird phrase. The second death, remember this is what we said. This is our rule when we interpret Revelation. First we look to Revelation. Is the direct interpretation there? If not, then we look to the rest of Scripture. Daniel, Zechariah, Matthew, Mark, all these places. The second death is expressly defined, I believe it's Revelation 21, and it says that... Uh, the devil and his angels get thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. So it's the second judgment. First, your separate death, you're separated from your life here on earth. 
You're going to go before God. And there's a second death, death, which is separation from the source of life, God, for all eternity, where you're separated from him, you're thrown in, in the lake of fire. Not you, but you know what I'm saying, those other people. The people that withstand persecution, God promises a crown of life and no harm in the second death. Final thoughts on this. Um, and then we'll close it down. There are limits to obedience to civil authority. The persecuted church in Smyrna was being told by the civil authority not to worship Jesus anymore, not to be a Christian, and not to behave like a Christian. And they withstood, they disobeyed the civil authority, and they were killed for it, many of them. We have a very soft Christianity that says, whatever the government says to do, I shall do it, oh God, government, right? No thank you. We have one God and one king. That God and king tells us to honor the civil government, absolutely. That God and king tells us to um, show, show or be humble and have discretion and Romans 13 it and all that kind of stuff. But our ultimate authority is God. Jesus Christ, who, who has the seven stars in his hand, who walks among the golden lampstand that has overcome death itself. He is our ultimate authority. We have a primary obligation not to submit ourselves to civil authorities. Our primary obligation is to our heavenly authority and then secondarily civil authority. And that's what Daniel and his friends did. He, they, they bucked uh, the system of governance when they needed to, even if they were going to be persecuted, and that's the other story about Daniel. All through the book of Daniel, those guys are getting persecuted, right? They're getting thrown into lion's dens, and they're getting thrown into fires. Why? Because they're Christians, well, let's just say they're people of God in a secular society. And here in New York City, you are people of God in a secular society. So persecution comes, and God rewards and crowns his people that withstand and stand for his name. Amen? Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. You guys can start tickling the ivories if you want. There, Stephen. <laughs> Jesus, when he comes to Smyrna, he rules death itself, and it says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25, chapter 15. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, this clearly does not include the one who put everything under him. Death is real. And it's palpable. And it's terrifying to face. And when people face death, it's often disorienting. It's often easy to... to totally shake your faith completely. I think the reward is so great, the crown of life is so great, because God knows what a giant death is to defeat and overcome. Death is the last enemy, the last giant, that we're promised that will be destroyed by the kingdom of heaven, by God's people. But Jesus has the stars in his right hand. He has dominion over the whole universe, the whole cosmos, and our lives as well. And so we can trust him with our hearts and our dreams and our hopes and our families and our communities, even in the midst of death itself. 
and this palpable, powerful enemy. Um, we have some family that has gone through death recently, and it can be so powerfully disorienting that you don't even know if up or down or down is up, and you try desperately to hold on to the scripture. But it, just looking at Smyrna, you know, Jesus is looking at Smyrna that they're facing death, and he's not nitpicking them. He's not like, oh yeah, there's this other issue, and then like you don't tie your shoes right, and oh, there's this other issue where you're theologically like slightly off here. He doesn't deal with any of those issues with Smyrna. He says, hold fast to my word, stand strong, and I'll crown you. And I think it's important. Jesus is not just king, as Gabe said this morning. He's also shepherd. He also desires to lead us through the valleys that are dark and the places that are confusing and grab hold of our hands and pull us into life. Amen, church? Why don't you stand with me? God, we thank you for the book of Revelation and revealing Jesus to us, revealing a God that's gracious and kind and strong and full of life and vibrance and power and uh, awesomeness. God, we ask that even this week, Jesus would be revealed more to our hearts, Lord, as we focus on you, as we love you, as we allow our, car, our hearts not to be cold, but to be reminded of your great love for us, to be filled with the life of the Spirit, to care for the lost and the broken. Jesus, would you continue to reveal yourself to us? And everybody said, Amen. Amen.